little bit of an 80s vibe there or something like that. Um, hi, so my name is, uh, is Donnie Cohn. It's really good seeing a bunch of familiar faces around here. Uh, one especially familiar face. Um, but also really good for uh, everybody who I haven't met. Really good to see you for the first time. And I'll share a little bit more with you over the course of, of our time together about what I do um, at NBC because it's actually part of uh, what we're going to be talking about this morning. So during the pandemic, um, the Lord took me through a process of um, wrestling through what exactly did he have next for me vocationally. And I had spent my first six years out of college serving here at NBC Loudoun in student ministry. And then I spent my next four years kind of working for NBC centrally doing all kinds of different projects. And the projects were, were cool. I definitely learned a lot. It was a really good experience, but the Lord had, had taken me to a place by the end of that where I was just wrestling through, like what exactly did, did he want for me vocationally? What, what was the next thing that he had for me? So one day I got an email from one of our lead pastors. We have three lead pastors and, and one of them uh, sent me an email and said, hey, would, would you possibly be open to um, considering leading uh, centrally for NBC for both student ministry to teenagers and, and young adult ministry. So I got together with the three lead pastors and uh, we talked through it. I shared with them some of the different things that, that I had been wrestling through. And uh, they said, we're gonna give you a homework assignment. I said, I think I'm a little old for that, but okay, we'll do it. Uh, and the homework assignment was this, they said, can you make a presentation for us about what you think um, God would have student ministry and young adult ministry look like at McLean Bible Church? So I'm like, okay, I can do that. So I, uh, I went back and I started doing all of this research because you know, even though I wasn't even totally sure this was what the Lord was leading me to, I at least wanted to make a good presentation out of it, right? <laughs> so I'm doing all this research and I'm looking at different approaches to ministry to young people and programming and how that can work. And the more research that I did, um, the more that the same difficult truth just kept coming up over and over and over and over again. And this was the difficult truth. Um, nationwide, so this isn't anything specific to McLean Bible Church, nationwide ministry to teenagers and to young adults is going very badly. Nationwide, ministry to teenagers and to young adults is going very badly. Um, there was a um, study from Gallup that came out just this week that found that only 30% of people aged 18 to 29 in our country um, believe in a God who hears and can answer prayers. Um, and that compares to 50% in the um, 50 to 64-year-old demographic. So... That's a really significant decline. And if you look at the demographics of our region in the DMV, um, it is almost certainly worse in our direct area, lower than 30% among young people. But in addition to that, it's not just young people in general. Even within churches, young people who are growing up in churches are in scary high numbers, either turning away from the faith or just becoming apathetic. So there was a study in 2019 um, from a Christian group called Lifeway 
So again, this is before pandemic, right? Pandemic maybe even made some of these statistics worse. 2019 study of young adults who at some point during high school consistently participated in church. Consistently participated in church. And what the study found was that only 69% of them were still attending at age 17. 58% of them were still attending at age 18. And only 40% of them were still attending at age 19. So when I say that, that things are going very badly with ministry to young people, with passing down the gospel to the next generation, um, yeah, I'm not exaggerating or, or being dramatic. Um, we really are in the midst of crisis territory. So I started digging into these um, statistics and by the time that I had finished preparing my presentation, um, at least one really good thing had happened. And that was that God had clearly answered my question about what he was calling me to do next. Um, that, that his you know, calling for me in this next season of life would be to try to understand, like by his grace as best I could, what, what's going on right now. And also to plead with him and as best I could to be part of trying to see a different picture here um, of a church just filled um, with young people who are absolutely thriving in their faith, and not only that, who are sharing it and spreading it um, among our generations, among younger people. So this morning, um, what we're going to do is we're going to go back to the first time that the gospel was passed down from one generation to the next. Um, and in some sense, the entire New Testament is about the passing down of the faith. But um, Paul's, first, uh, Paul's two letters, one and two Timothy, they are in a unique way um, talking about how Paul, a representative of the apostles in this first generation of, of Christians, was entrusting the ministry of the gospel, the passing down of the faith to his younger protege, Timothy, who was then going to carry the baton forward in the next generation. So we're about to take a whirlwind tour of First and Second Timothy. I promise I'm not going to keep you here all day. We could study them all day, but I promise I won't. Um, and what we're going to do as we do that is we're going to look at five principles for passing the gospel to the next generation. And we're going to consider um, how they apply to specifically to the context that we find ourselves in uh, because I think we're going to find them really, really applicable. Now, as we do that, these are a few prayers that I have um, as we walk through some of this stuff today. So um, my first prayer is that we would be able to do it with a bit of a, a heaviness and an urgency that um, is demanded not just by those numbers, but by the way that I know people around this room, including myself, feel this issue so personally. Um, people who, uh, whether because you have friends or because you're a parent and you have kids in these younger generations and you just deeply love these people and don't want to see them become another statistic. So we talk about this with a little bit of heaviness. Um, second, my, my prayer is that um, we can talk about this with, with some honesty. Um, not just having a conversation about the difficult things that are happening outside the church, 
some of the ways in which society and, and culture are, are, are difficult right now, but also talking about some of the challenges um, within the church and within Christianity in America. And then third, on top of that, my, my prayer would be um, that we could also approach this with eagerness, with actually a little bit of excitement that God has put us here for such a time as this. Um, I'll be honest with you, after the 9 a.m., I kind of felt like I had bummed them out. They, they came on this beautiful summer day, and, you know, then they're getting these statistics thrown at them, and it, it's a difficult topic to be able to talk about. And I would just say, even as we dive in, there really is hope. Um, God is still at work, even in the midst of all of this. There are young people even in this room, not to mention all around the world, who God is really meaningfully at work in their lives, and they are following hard after Jesus. So my prayer is that even as we talk about some challenging things, we would do so like with hope and with trust in our heart of the God who we follow. So with all that said, uh, let's walk through five principles for passing the gospel to the next generation. Um, the first one is not going to surprise anybody, but it still absolutely needs to be said. Um, the first principle is that we teach them the word. So from the very start of First Timothy, so this is third verse, Paul says to Timothy, I urged you when I was going to Macedonia to remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach, uh-oh, thought we had that. I was going to underline it for you and it was going to look really good. You know what I'm going you know to do? I'm going to see if by uh, doing this I can, I can connect it in. Here we go. This would be magic if it worked, all right? All right, let's see. Yeah, there we go. All right. Not to teach any different doctrine, right? So from the very start of the letter, we're talking about a situation where Paul is focused on what is being taught in these churches, that it matters what's being taught in these churches. He goes on, 4-6, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So both for Timothy as an individual, he's supposed to be trained in the words of the faith and of good doctrine, but also what it means for him to be a good servant of Christ Jesus is that he would put these things before the brothers, right? Teaching of the church, really significant. And keep going, 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public teaching of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And then finally, this one's kind of a big chunk here, but we'll read it all together from 2 Timothy. He tells Timothy, as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, he tells Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience in teaching. 
And of course, it's really significant. We don't just want to gloss over the conversation about the significance of the word of God because we're living in a day where the word of God itself is controversial. And some of the people who are actually trying to speak into this debate, not at this church at all, but just broader in the American church about, you know, what do we do about young people walking away from the faith? For some of them, the solution that they put forward is, let's try to turn away from some of the more um, doctrines that are more difficult for these generations to accept. Let's try to actually change what the word says on, on some of these things, whether it be um, teaching about eternal judgment and hell, whether it's the exclusivity of Christ, whether it's sexual ethics, like different issues, that there's a desire to do that. And we see really clearly in here, we don't have a choice of teaching a different doctrine, right? Like that can't be the solution that we go after, that, that Paul has instructed Timothy really carefully, you're supposed to continue in what you've learned and, and firmly believe, the sacred writings, and you're supposed to continue in them, whether they're in season or even if they're out of season, right? Can't be the response to how we deal with generational challenges to try to change the word or change doctrine or stop teaching the word. But a couple of thoughts here, um, just broadly, as we try to apply this in our lives, one of them specifically for parents. Um, this is actually really good news. You do not have to be the world's greatest theologian to teach the word in your home, yeah. right? You don't get intimidated by how challenging this, this can feel to be. Like if you're in the word yourself, like just see a verse that stands out to you and just share it with your kids and ask, what do you think God's saying? How does it strike you? Or take a time for your family and just read a well-known Bible story together each week, right? You could read David and Goliath, or you could read Daniel in the lion's den, or Jesus walking on water, and just have a conversation, guys. What do you think it means? What's God saying? How does this apply to our lives, right? Like, we just want to be faithful in this. It doesn't have to be like this high-level preaching that you're doing with your kids, um, just be faithful to bring the word into our homes, and we're going to trust God to do the work with that. One other thing, um, and this tends to relate a little more to older children, to, uh, to teenagers. I'll, I'll, put this, uh, I'll put this politely. The parents are going to know what I'm talking about. But, but the parents of teenagers, every so often, you find yourself in a situation, or maybe even kind of consistently, where your teenagers aren't totally eager to patiently listen as you explain something to them in, in extended detail. Do we know the situation that I'm talking about? Have we, have we possibly seen that? And, and here is, here's what I would um, commend to you there. The, the best way, I think, to mitigate that challenge is in the way that you teach as a parent, to teach as little as possible through lecture-style communication and as much as possible through conversational communication with, with your kids. That thinking about the actual style of, of teaching that you use in the home as being like, we're going to ask questions, 
We're going to actually try to get, like, what about this is hard for you? Like, what seems difficult? We're going to bring out tensions. We're going to try to, like, whatever the things are that they're wrestling with. Like, we want to talk through those. And we actually see ourselves um, not necessarily as the one who's going to walk them through and tell them everything, but as the one who's going to guide them as they go on this journey of answering their questions and coming to truth and finding who God is. Um, And I think we're going to end up finding that that is going to lead both, um, yeah, just to better engagement, but also ultimately even to better learning, to to internalization of the things that are being talked about. All right. That was the first principle. We teach them the word. Second principle, we model Christ's character. So look at what uh, what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. He said, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example. Really important, believers an example. In speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, right? So it's not, it is, we keep a watch on the doctrine, the truth of what we believe and what we say, but just as important, we keep a close watch on ourselves, on who we are as people. 1 Timothy 6.11, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. 6.14, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see it a couple places in 2 Timothy also. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And finally, you, however, he tells, he tells Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. So Paul is absolutely caring about the model that he sets for Timothy in his teaching. Right? I'm teaching in a way that you could follow the truth of what, of what I say, but he also cares deeply about the, the model that he's actually followable with regard to his conduct, his aim or his purpose in life, as well as things like his patience or his love. Now, this is an area where it's really easy um, I think everybody agrees in principle um, that the way that Christians live matters. But this is also an issue where if we look broadly at our cultural setting right now in, in American Christianity, where this is one of the biggest headwinds that we're facing in passing the gospel to the next generation. Broadly speaking, Young people are looking at adult Christians. They're looking at us. And they're taking stock of everything that that they see and they're asking themselves, do I want that for me? Do I want to be that? And far too commonly, the answer that they're ultimately coming to is no. Now, I want to caveat that in a few different ways. So uh, caveat number one would be that when young people reject Christianity, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes what they're actually rejecting is a hypocritical cultural form of Christianity. 
You hear sometimes statistics that are thrown out there about um, Christians and the general population not being any different in, in some kind of a, of a lifestyle measure. But then when researchers dig in more deeply to those statistics, often what they find is that for people who are heavily involved in a church, people for whom their faith is really an essential or the essential part of their life, there actually is a meaningful difference in how they live versus how the general population of the United States or, or whatever other place lives. So there really is this dynamic of, of cultural Christians kind of pulling down the numbers and making it feel even worse than it is. So that's a real thing. Caveat number two, um, there are times when younger people criticize older Christians just for believing the Bible, right? Like often in our culture, um, it is a thing to call people intolerant because they believe in what the Bible teaches about sexuality, even if they go out of their way to be loving and to be kind and to be patient towards those who disagree. So that too is a real thing. I'll give caveat number three also, like we should acknowledge that in every generation, there are many examples of young people rebelling against their parents' values, right? It happens. We've, you know, some of us are younger than others, but we've all at least been, been young at one time. But with that said, right, a lot of parents with teenage kids, they actually experience the church as a place of shame because they feel like walking around, um, people are assuming that the reason why their kids are struggling the way that they are, or they're turning away from the Lord, is some kind of deficiency in them as a parent. And in so many cases, it is not anything that the parent did wrong. So we want to strive with all we are to be a place that supports struggling parents rather than shames them. But with all of those caveats in place, the massive scale on which young people are turning away from the church suggests that there's something more fundamental at play than just typical generational youthful rebellion, which is going on in our society right now. And there are certainly many reasons why young people are, are turning away from the faith. Um, among them, you think about smartphones and social media, potentially increasing the level of peer influence and decreasing the level of family and church community influence. But one of the factors does seem to be that when you ask a young person, how would they describe a Christian? What are the words that come to your mind? Usually the words are not loving, patient, gentle, right? Much more often, they think of us, rightly or wrongly, as being angry or difficult, or always bickering over something. And... Yeah, like even when in our lives, like even when we can look at the Lord and, and, and feel like we're really genuinely in our hearts striving after them, like I know each of us knows like ways in which we could be doing better. Um, but Paul knew there was a reason why through God's inspiration, he affirmed that it is our love 
and it's our patience, and it's our gentleness, and it's our purity, and it's our kind speech, and it's all of these things that pass the gospel down to the next generation just as much as speaking the right words, speaking the truth about who Jesus is. They're both needed together. So that's two principles. We teach them the word, and we model Christ's character. Third principle for passing the gospel down to the next generation, we entrust them to make disciples. So Paul, in the midst of giving all these different instructions to Timothy, says to him in 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So all of the things that Paul was teaching Timothy, all of the things that that he had said to him, he said this charge, which was this whole thing about not teaching any other doctrine and how you work with the church and how you help them and how you you lead them to walk in maturity, I'm entrusting it to you. I'm giving you this to do. In 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 2, he says, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus and what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Now you go and entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Right? So in in a large part, the entire books of 1 and 2 Timothy are the story of Paul entrusting to Timothy this like new generation of, of gospel ministry. But in these verses, we see him both specifically saying that that's, what he's gonna, that that's what he's doing in the letters, but also in this second verse that we've got up on the screen, we see him saying, hey, Timothy, you're not just supposed to make disciples. You're supposed to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, right? To pass it on in a way that it's going to get passed on further and further and further. So that's wonderful. But now how do we think about that in our context, right? We also have been charged to entrust disciple-making to the next generation and and even to train them up as disciple-makers to be prepared to do it. And again, if we look broadly at the American church landscape, I think one of the things that we find is that often the intentionality of parents to raise kids with high character, it's like up here. Like every parent I've ever seen, there's just this eagerness that I want to raise a kid with these values that they're going to work hard and that they're going to be kind and that they're going to to be these great kinds of people. But sometimes in our church landscape, there's significantly um, less eagerness or intentionality about raising our kids to be disciple makers. And that can be really difficult because especially before a kid is born again, there are kind of some limits on what you're able to do with that, right? You can model disciple-making, you can talk about disciple-making, you can pray for them as disciple-makers, like find little ways to, to bring them into it. But we, we actually can't totally entrust disciple-making to a child or a teenager, or even a young adult, who isn't at a point where they have really been born again. And we want to be really careful not to just assume that our kids are born again uh, when there isn't actually fruit to demonstrate that that's the case. But if our child or teenager or young adult is born again, they've got spiritual gifts and they need to exercise them. 
right? Whether that's finding opportunities for them to serve in the church, whether that's finding opportunities just in other informal ways. And, and if our child is born again, or a teenager, or a young adult, they also need opportunities to be around in, in ways that are appropriate to their age and maturity. They need ways to be around non-believers who are their age. Because if they don't have those, their desire and eagerness and readiness to share about Jesus, it's going to wither rather than grow. And, and we need to acknowledge, honestly, like in our own hearts, especially if it's, a, if it's your own kid or just somebody who you really care about, that there's, there's actually a fear factor that's associated with that. And as our culture gets scarier, there's going to be a greater temptation for us to become more insular in the way that we approach that. Um, but if we're going to pass the gospel down faithfully, we're going to need to be intentional about entrusting born-again teenagers, young adults, children to be disciple-makers. Number four. We doing okay? Yeah. We need an intermission or something? We can... Any, any, okay, all right, just making sure. All right, number four, we don't get distracted. And it's interesting, there were a few ways that this comes up throughout First and Second Timothy. So one of them was we don't get distracted by side issues. So in the verse that we already looked at, right, remember, uh, Paul instructed Timothy, remain at Ephesus and charged them not to teach any different doctrine, nor, he says, to devote themselves to myths, and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Similarly, 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And then one more here, 2.23, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So, as followers of Jesus, one thing that if we're honest, it can actually be a blessing and a joy is to break bread over the table um, with a friend in Christ and maybe to go back and forth a little bit on some theological issue or some public policy thing or so, like just whatever it is that we're interested in and, and just enjoy going back and forth about as friends. But we at the same time need to be really eager to avoid the temptation to start making those kinds of things central to who we are as a church or as Christians. And that's the warning, I think, that Paul was giving Timothy here. He's saying, don't get distracted by side issues. He also talks in the letters about, don't get distracted by worldly prosperity. So in 1 Timothy 6, 8 and 9, he says, if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he adds in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. If we're gonna pass the gospel down to the next generation, like we need to make sure that we do not get distracted by the pursuit of prosperity, which in Loudoun County is especially tempting. We also need to ensure 
that we don't get caught up in the pursuit of our kids' prosperity either, right? The world is going to tell us that the most important thing for our kids is how they do in school, and it's that they get into a competitive college. And as we affirm that, yeah, maybe those are good things if God has them in store for our kids, like we need to be so, so careful that our attempts to set them up for their future in this life do not lead to deprioritizing, setting them up for their future with God forever, right? We don't get distracted by worldly prosperity. And then finally, he also talks about just a little more broadly, like not getting distracted by the cares of the world. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. And there are so many civilian pursuits that we can get pulled into, right? Our careers, our finances, our kids' school, their futures, their extracurriculars, right? Like the list goes on and on and on. But if we're talking about passing the gospel to the next generation, um, there's probably one more civilian pursuit that would be helpful for us to consider. And that would be politics. Can we talk about it? So as a church in the D.C. area, um, we've seen among our, our brothers and sisters that God absolutely calls some followers of Jesus to pursue careers in public policy. And he also calls some other followers of Jesus to devote free time to studying and advocating for wise and just public policies. And even just now, like a little earlier in this service, we praised God together with David in his prayer for some of the fruit of that advocacy and that pursuit of, of just policies for our society. But there have also been elements of our political engagement that have made it more difficult to pass down the gospel. For instance, it's become normal in our cultural context for professing Christians to spend more time engaging with hyper-polarized political commentary than with the Word of God. And, and that hurts us so badly with the next generation. It, it hurts us in our own growth as disciples, like it hurts our spiritual growth, but it hurts us so badly with the next generation. And certainly there are a few of them who don't mind or, or even like it, but for many of them, the tone of some political engagement, either from Christians or just from professing Christians, has become a turnoff to their willingness to pursue Jesus. And they see us talking about the same things as everybody else, and they see us arguing in the same ways as everybody else, and getting into the same disputes on social media as everyone else, and being polarized in the same way as everybody else. And they know implicitly that that is not what following God is supposed to look like. So we cannot let civilian pursuits entangle us if we're going to pass the gospel down to the next generation. All right. Fifth principle, talked about teaching the word, talked about modeling Christ's character and trusting him to make disciples, not getting distracted. And finally, number five, and this was the most surprising one to me, honestly, as I was researching it, but it makes so much sense. We suffer when needed. Look what Paul says to Timothy several times. 
So 2 Timothy 1.8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Again, 2.3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 3.12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, all in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And then finally, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. There is nothing that will show the next generation the value of the gospel more than our willingness to suffer for it. We don't ask for suffering. We don't seek suffering. But when it comes, our readiness to endure it for Jesus' sake, will speak volumes that our words never could. In fact, some of the stories that spur us on most in our faith are stories of people suffering for God's glory, whether biblical stories like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego preferring the fiery furnace to bowing down to an idol, or whether more recent stories like Jim Elliot, who was speared to death by warriors from an unreached people group as he tried to share the gospel with them. And his wife, Elizabeth, who then went back just a few years later with their young child to ultimately share the gospel with them and to lead her husband's killers to Christ. Even if we never end up in a fiery furnace or at the tip of a spear, we will find ourselves faced with some significant choices of whether we'll hide the gospel behind our backs and move forward with a more comfortable life or whether we'll represent Jesus faithfully and accept whatever might come from other people or from our society as a result of that. And how younger generations learn to value the gospel hinges on our response. I should add, if you are here today and you are not a follower of Jesus, you haven't yet entrusted your life to follow after him, whether you are a young person who's disillusioned and and questioning or whether you have a totally different story. Um, I just want you to hear from me before we leave that even as we discuss openly all these different flaws and imperfections without following Jesus, I want you to know that there is a God there really is, who is flawless and who is perfect. And he is worthy of your life and your all and even of your suffering, if he should call you to that. He's a God who loves you so much. He sent his son to die for you so that you could be forgiven of your sins, so that you could have relationship restored to him, both like right now in this life and going on for eternity, forever and ever. And I would just urge you today, do not let disillusionment or whatever other excuse, whatever other reason might be on your heart, keep you from having a relationship with that God. All right, we've covered a lot this morning. Um, including some some pretty heavy things, um, if we're honest. But um, we're going to finish with this. We've we've spent a lot of time talking about 
um, our efforts, what it is that God's calling from us as a church to, to pass along the gospel to the next generation. And that's fitting because so much of First and Second Timothy was Paul talking about Timothy's efforts and, and what was going to happen as he tried to pass the gospel on to the next generation. But even with that, Paul is very clear that it will not ultimately be Timothy's efforts or the efforts of any other person that cause a new generation to follow after Jesus. So we'll look at one last passage from 1 Timothy, or from 2 Timothy, the 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 12, where Paul says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. So praise God that even as he calls us to strive with all his energy to pass the gospel down to the next generations, the results are ultimately in his hands. Like he saved us. He called us. And he did it not because of our works, but because of his own purpose. And ultimately, he is able to guard the gospel, the church, and the next generation, and every generation after that, until that day when he comes back to make everything right. For being honest, we face some incredible difficulties right now, but we also serve an incredible God, one who's able to do far more than all that we could ever ask or imagine. So let's pray to that God right now. Dear Heavenly Father, we're just so grateful to you for your salvation, for your calling. We're grateful that you entrust to us even even a heavy weight of passing on the gospel. And we're grateful beyond measure that it's not ultimately us who are responsible, but that you take responsibility, that you're the one who builds your church and the gates of hell won't stand against it. Lord, I plead with you on behalf of, of people all around this room who may even have names on their mind right now, on their hearts, of people who are, are turning away from you or who are apathetic towards you, disinterested in in following after you. And we just pray for each and every one of them that you would not only save them and call them to follow after you, but that you would use them, that you would use them to wage the good warfare, that you'd use them to lead their own generation to follow after you, and to pass the gospel down faithfully to many generations to come until the day when you come back to be here and set everything right. We love you and we trust you. And we pray for all of this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.